Thank you so much for that kind introduction and welcome to everyone. It's so nice to see you here at this event. I'm thrilled about it and I wanted to thank Chinny and all the other student organizers who helped to make it happen. So if you were here this morning, you heard Dean Golubov mention that today is the 200th anniversary of the signing of the Charter of the University of Virginia. So actually today, and I think this very hour at the Capitol in Richmond, um, this bicentennial is being commemorated. A bicentennial is a wonderful thing. I think we're only the second law school in the United States to have one. Um, but it, to me, what this signifies is the beginning of the third century for this university. And I can think of nothing more fitting than to have a group of scholars and experts who are focused on new technologies, thinking here today, on this very day, about what the future of this country looks like and how new technologies are already affecting our republic in its third century. And as we're thinking about that today, there's no better person that we could have to help us address those questions than Jack Balkan. Jack Balkan is Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at Yale Law School. He's the founder and director of Yale's Information Society Project, which is an interdisciplinary center that studies law and new information technologies. He also directs the Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression and the Knight Law and Media Program at Yale. Jack received his PhD in philosophy from Cambridge University and his AB and JD degrees from Harvard University. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He founded and edits the group blog Balkanization, which is required reading for anyone, I think, who's in the legal field. And he's the author of over 100 articles in different fields, including constitutional theory, internet law, freedom of speech, reproductive rights, jurisprudence, and the theory of ideology. Now, among his many areas of expertise are information technology and democratic culture. Jack's work bridges the theoretical and the practical. It brings together technical understanding of new and evolving technologies and deep the theoretical commitments about democratic culture and representation. His concept of information fiduciaries has influenced public debate and was cited in Senate hearings on online platforms use of consumer data. Now, I was thrilled when I heard that Jack was coming to the law school. And as a First Amendment scholar, I have to say that everything that I think about, everything that I work on, uh, if I look up Jack's corpus of work, he's written something about it. And that's not just true in First Amendment, that's true in a number of other areas as well. This means there's so many things that I could say about Jack that I could spend the entire time of the keynote uh, talking about him. So uh, in the interest of not doing that, um, and Jack told me he wanted the, in, the introduction to say nothing. So I'm, I'm not going to say nothing, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to you know, strike a balance somewhere. So I, I asked Chinny and the student organizers, if there's one thing you want me to say about Jack Balkan, what is that thing? And what they said is, he's the perfect example of a scholar who did not grow up aspiring to be a tech law scholar, but pivoted his focus, learned the requisite technical information to approach issues in a nuanced way, and began tackling emerging technologies and the legal questions they present. And I agree with all of that. Jack is first and foremost a scholar of democracy and a scholar of communication. But he happened to see, earlier than most of us, that both democracy and communication would be revolutionized by new technologies. And he has been a leader in predicting and analyzing the implications of that ever since. 
As Cheney put it, we don't all have to become tech lawyers, but we can all strive to understand new technologies and fearlessly take on the hard questions that they raise, including how they challenge the laws and regimes that we're used to and how they challenge the theoretical assumptions on which our frameworks rely. In that endeavor, we can ask for no better guide than Jack Balkan. Now that I have your attention, we're going to talk about social media today. How many of you, by the way, uh, uh, use social media regularly? We're all doomed. <laughs> actually, no, we're not all doomed. That's, that's not actually my view. Uh, but I'm going to talk to you a little about some of the challenges and, and uh, threats uh, for social media and, and what to deal about them. And social media is everywhere in the news. There was an article just today about Facebook um, uh, arranging to have children spend altogether too much money playing games, uh, charging their parents credit cards, and <laughs> deciding not to give the money back. Uh, there was another article in January about Facebook's uh, social media moderators who um, uh, the author is breathlessly explaining how uh, Facebook is governing democracies around the world uh, and that they're doing it by moderators who are actually contractors working uh, hired away from call centers who are given PowerPoint slides and told to basically moderate uh, the hottest uh, democratic debates all over the world. Uh, there was, uh, of course, the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, back in March 2018, how long ago that seems, in Trump years. And, um, uh, the, uh, and there was the whole debate over uh, Alex Jones and uh, conspiracy theories. There was, there was an article recently on how easy it is to move from an NPR uh, documentary on YouTube to the, the wildest, craziest conspiracy theories uh, when you get recommendations for the next things to watch. So it's everywhere, uh, essentially. Um, oh, and then finally, you know, Russian, the Russians. Need I say more? The Russians. Uh, uh, the Russians are coming, and they're uh, and they're uh, and they're engaged in disinformation in the United States. Okay. So everybody wants to know what to do about social media, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, the one of the problems is that the complaints about what to do about social media are all over the place. They all go in different directions. So for example, uh, some people argue, listen, you know, uh, social media, nobody elected them, but here they are basically structuring debate all over the world. Uh, they're basically shaping democracies all over the world, and they should stop it. They shouldn't be governing us. On the other hand, people also say, but social media should really keep their spaces safe and they should moderate, and uh, they should protect me from various forms of abuse and threats and things that I don't want to hear. Uh, other people say that uh, they shouldn't censor. Uh, they shouldn't censor me and people I like, but they should censor that other person uh, and other people that I don't like and who I regard as threats to the republic. Um, you know something? The government should take them over uh, or make them into public utilities. Uh, uh, but I still want them to engage in various forms of uh, uh, speech regulation, uh, which is really hard to do once you're a part of the government. Um, 
And uh, they shouldn't allow things to go viral, that's the real problem, but they shouldn't uh, prevent what I want to say from going viral because that's just censorship. So anyway, people have all sorts of views about what they want to do with social media and they go in many different directions. That's because people want social media to do a lot of different things and they're not exactly sure about what they want. So I'm going to start in a slightly different place and I'm going to build up to a discussion of some proposals for what one might do for regulation of social media. The first, I, 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 big ideas. First big idea I want to uh, give you is first of all that freedom of speech is now triangular. It's a triangle. It has three sides, maybe more than three sides, but at least three. The second idea I want to emphasize is freedom of speech, not free. Costs a lot of money to make it happen. If you want a digital public sphere, it costs a lot of money, and the question is how you're going to do it. And the third big idea that I want you to understand is that social media rest on business models. That's why they stay in business. If you want them to reform themselves, you have to change their business models. Otherwise, they cannot and will not change the way they currently do things. It's because of the business model. So those are the three big ideas I wanted to get across, and that will take us to the question of particular kinds of reforms. Okay, first idea. Free speech, a triangle. What do I mean by that? Well, if you thought about freedom of speech uh, in the 20th century and before, it would be very simple. You have a nation state, you have a municipality, you have a government, and it basically issues various kinds of regulations of speech, um, which it could back up with fines, with imprisonment, uh, with threats, with jailing people. Basically, that's how it worked. And if you were a First Amendment scholar, which I am, that's all you did. You studied how, uh, how nation states or municipalities basically tried to regulate you. That's what we might call old school. That's old school. And it's still practiced all around the world. People are still arrested, fined, imprisoned, even killed uh, uh, for speaking. So old school is still around. But the problem is, or rather the opportunity is, we now have a new school of speech regulation in which nation states don't go after the speaker, they go after the internet infrastructure. What's the internet infrastructure? Well, it's all the stuff that's necessary to make a digital public sphere. That includes the DNS system, right? Uh, the, uh, the, uh, and um, payment systems like MasterCard and Visa, um, uh, Verizon and broadband systems, uh, broadband providers. Um, uh, the entire uh, infrastructure that allows for digital communication, and then on top of that, um, search engines, uh, email providers, and then uh, social media sites as well. So that's the entire infrastructure. And if you are a modern nation state or the European Union, a supranational entity, uh, you find that it's much easier in many cases, instead of going after individual speakers, to go after the infrastructure and get the infrastructure to do your work for you. You do that by threatening the infrastructure or by coaxing the infrastructure or by uh, uh, basically engaging in jawboning of the infrastructure to do the kind of regulation that you yourself don't have the technical capacity to do. And this kind of regulation, the regulation directed at the infrastructure, is what I call new school. It's the new school of speech regulation. And then finally, we have uh, something that flows almost logically from the new school of speech regulation, and that's what we might call private governance. What is that? Very simple. 
the reason why nation states have aimed at infrastructure owners to do their work for them is because infrastructure owners and especially uh, social media companies and search engine companies have gotten better and better and better at filtering, blocking, identifying, and um, removing content. That is to say, their technical capacities for this, uh, which were primitive 20 years ago, have become more sophisticated. And they will get more sophisticated in the future, too. And as that's happened, and also as a huge number of people have flocked to social media and use it every day, they have found themselves in a position they didn't want to be in. They found themselves in the position of being the governors of the spaces that they run. They are, in a sense, the, the descendants of the original game gods. The game gods were people who ran um, online games. Sometimes they, uh, the earliest versions were all text-based. And what would happen is that they, uh, the idea is they wanted to create the spaces and then people would play the game. But then people started abusing uh, other people in the game. And so the game gods had to swoop in and they had to basically discipline the space. In fact, the, the, the first famous article in the law of cyberspace um, uh, by Julian Dibble uh, back in 96. It's called A Rape in Cyberspace. And it's about the story of an early version of a text-based uh, game, online game, and the problems of people abusing each other in that game and what the people who wrote the game, who controlled the code, eventually had to do. Eventually they just wanted to create the game and leave, but they realized they had to come in and control it. And the same thing, of course, has happened at a much, much grander level with social media. Social media, originally, they were made a way to make money. They were technology companies and they were advertising companies. But as they created these spaces, they eventually became in the same position as the game gods. They had to control it and govern it. And so now, a large part of what a social media company like Twitter or Facebook does is to govern spaces by imposing codes of, of appropriate behavior and various kinds of speech codes. And that goes hand in hand with their increase in technical abilities. But the problem, of course, is that these companies have wanted to do it on the cheap because they were organized as tech companies. Tech companies are organized with relatively spare staffs. They're not strongly hierarchical pyramidal structures like General Motors. They were organized to be lean and relatively uh, um, flat in terms of their hierarchy. And so they just basically did not imagine that this was the world they were going to have to inhabit. But now they have to. As a result, you get the story in the New York Times about basically turning to independent contractors to basically become moderators. And essentially, their business structure in some way has been challenged by this new role of being the governor of the spaces in which they inhabit. All right. So now that shows you why we have a triangle. We have the speakers here at the bottom, civil society. We have nation states, the traditional governors of speech and regulators of speech, who are constantly engaging in old school speech regulation. And we have over here the infrastructure providers, ranging in many, many different kinds, ranging from the payment systems, the DNS system, the broadband providers, the content providers, uh, uh, the email providers, and the social media companies and search engines. And they're at this end. And so one way of understanding what freedom of speech digitally online is today is it's a struggle for power between the different parts of this triangle. The attempts of mutual influence between the different legs of uh, different nodes of this triangle. So one way of understanding many speech controversies over, for example, hate speech codes, 
the European Union's hate speech rules, which are directed at uh, the big four players, or the right to be forgotten, very much in the news today. All of these can be understood in thinking about how one part of the triangle is trying to influence or control another part of the triangle. And if you think about all of the popular um, uh, arguments for uh, Facebook should do this or they shouldn't do that, they should take Alex Jones down, no they shouldn't take Alex Jones down. You can understand that as civil society actors, journalists, and uh, uh, politicians and the public basically demanding that the infrastructure regulates speech and governs speech in one way rather than another. Just in the same way they used to petition, argue, and complain to the government about what kind of speech they should not govern or govern. That's the world we live in today. But wait, there's more. As this triangle has developed, we also have what we might call the clash of empires. What do I mean by that? Well, I would say, and it, this could change over time, but I would say that there are three basic power sources in the world today attempting to control the internet infrastructure. The first is the United States. The second is the European Union. The third is China. There are many, many other countries in the world, but none of, no other country really has that same combination of technical power, economic power, political power to basically try to work their will over the internet. So we have three great empires, the American Empire, the European Empire, and the Chinese Empire, if I can use that expression, all trying to remake the internet in their image. That is, they would all very much like the security rules and the access rules and the speech rules to conform to their vision of what the internet should be. Not surprisingly, they get into big fights over this. The Americans and the Europeans disagree about privacy, as was clear from the last panel. Um, and they both disagree with the Chinese about any number of different issues ranging from content policy to privacy to security. And what we see is a titanic struggle by these major powers over trying to make the internet look the way they want to look at it. So when we think about speech controversies, we have to understand it against the background of this big struggle in which it's just one part. Okay. And there are many, many problems, by the way, that are coming up very soon. One of them is going to be the problem of global jurisdiction. For example, the, uh, the EU has a right to be forgotten policy, which requires search engines like Google to delist or delink articles, which in the views of the European Union's regulators are unnecessary, irrelevant, or inappropriate. This policy uh, would be considered unconstitutional in the United States. It would violate our First Amendment. The interesting question is going to be how far the right to be forgotten extends. Google has offered to create geolocation. That is, if you're in a European Union country, uh, it will direct you to a version of the search engine where these links are delisted. But if you just go to the general Google search engine, google.com, and you're outside of the European Union, or you appear to be outside of the European Union, Google will give you all of the search uh, results unfiltered. But that is not good enough for some of the countries of the European Union. Uh, France in particular had taken the position, this is now being litigated, uh, that in fact they want uh, worldwide jurisdiction, global jurisdiction for the right to be forgotten because of course French citizens might be anywhere in the world. And not only that, the interests of French citizens will be affected everywhere in the world. It is a global world after all. This is a big fight. 
this is probably one of the most important fights in thinking about the future of free speech and social media. The question of how the issue of global jurisdiction is resolved. And it is not yet resolved. It is currently being debated in the European Union. Hopefully there are signs that the European Union will back off against global jurisdiction, but then you have to think about, well, somebody else may try it. And so that's a really important thing to understand, and it's part of what we might call this struggle between the various empires that are trying to remake the internet of their own image. Okay, now I'm going to move on to the idea that freedom of speech isn't free. What do I mean by that? Any system of free expression requires an infrastructure and institutions to make it real. The infrastructure of the 20th century would be things like printing presses, delivery trucks, uh, cameras, uh, buildings where you know, the networks would be housed, newspaper rooms, and also institutions like uh, labor unions that basically control delivery and printing, um, uh, uh, journalism as an institution, um, educational institutions. In other words, you cannot really have a public sphere, a public sphere of freedom of, where freedom of expression is lodged without a combination of infrastructures and institutions. These things cost money. We have moved now to a digital public sphere. We have moved now to digital infrastructures and digital institutions. The question is, how do we pay for them? How do we make it possible for you with just a few, uh, 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 just a, a few uh, actions on your cell phone to reach around the world and talk to anybody instantaneously. The answer we do so through a combination of subscription fees, sales of media goods, and especially through advertising. Your broadband services are paid for through subscription. Your DNS services are paid for through subscription. Right? You also buy media goods, but in most cases, this entire infrastructure is paid for through advertisement. And that advertisement, which gives you basically free or deeply discounted services in exchange for uh, uh, the ability to serve ads, is also basically what we call the grand bargain of the digital public sphere. That grand bargain goes something like this. We will give you an amazing set of possibilities, an amazing set of opportunities to speak to anyone about anything at any time you want. We will give you an amazing search engine that allows you to find anything you want as quickly as possible because of course you can't have an effective public sphere now without search engines. We will give you all these things, these wonderful things that give you magical powers, at least from the standpoint of previous centuries, and we'll give it to you all for free. And all you have to do in return is allow us to surveil you. All you have to do in return is allow us to record your location, your tastes, your preferences, your keystrokes, even your eye movements in some cases, what your face looks like. All you have to do is allow us to record and analyze all these things so that we can either sell that data to someone else or we can use it to serve ad ads to you. That's the grand bargain that makes the digital public sphere possible. And that is the very same grand bargain that creates all of the problems that you read about in the papers. It's all premised on that particular business model. Now, there are ways that you can deal with the problem, this grand bargain, but 
you need to understand that each of them has benefits and detriments, advantages and disadvantages. The grand bargain produces a situation in which social media companies have an incentive to spy on you, well obviously so, but they also have an incentive to manipulate you and they also have an incentive to hand you over to other people who will in turn manipulate you. Okay, you say fine, let's stop that. And, and by the way, to do it all as cheaply as possible. That's also part of the New York Times story about uh, handing out the moderation services to the contractors. Well, what's all that? It's really easy. Why don't we just have the government take it over? Right? Let's just make them all public fora. Let's just all make them part of the state. Then, the, uh, then they won't be able to censor us anymore. Then they won't be able to manipulate us anymore. Well, there's a problem, and the problem is very simple. As soon as you make something a state actor, as soon as you imp uh, impose these kinds of obligations under, under the First Amendment, they will now not be able to moderate content at all. Because, of course, content-based regulation and viewpoint-based regulation are not allowed to governments under the First Amendment. And most of what you want social media to do, by the way, whether you know it or not, is to engage in various forms of moderation, content moderation and organization of data in ways that, in fact, would be prohibited under the First Amendment. And that would also be true of you, whether you think of them as state actors directly or you treat them as public utilities that have the obligations of a state actor. That's not going to work. And there's another problem, too. Instead of private companies harvesting all your data and analyzing it, now it will be the government that will harvest all of your data and analyze it. And under existing Fourth Amendment law, you will have consented. So there's no Fourth Amendment problem. Now, you could say, oh, fine. What we'll just do is we'll build into the statute a rule that the government cannot collect any of this data. And the government cannot use any of this data. I hate to tell you, but I am not very optimistic about that solution. I just think that governments handed over enormous amounts of information about all the citizens they govern and citizens and people all over the world will just be too sorely tempted to make use of that data. It will be impossible for them not to do it. So I don't think that the standard moves that have been made, uh, uh, public fora, state or state actors, that's going to work. I also don't think the public utility model is going to work either. The public utility model is not going to work because basically public utilities in the traditional 20th century idea are primarily about things like quality of service, access to service, fair pricing. That's not what the issue is in the context of social media. The services are free. And Facebook and Twitter want everyone to use them, no problem of access. And they want the quality to be high. They want you to get the stuff immediately. The real problems are different problems than 20th century public utilities are usually concerned with. They're problems of surveillance and manipulation. Those are the central issues. And for that, I think you need to think differently about how to do this. Okay, one more thing before I go on a little bit about solutions. It's really important to distinguish between what we might call the curation level, that is, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Twitters, those who basically curate content and deliver it, and what we might call basic internet services. And by basic internet service, I mean the DNS system, 
broadband providers, web hosting services, defense services like Cloudflare, and also payment systems, MasterCard and Visa. I would make a big distinction between these two uh, types of companies. With respect to basic internet services, I think that the appropriate rule should be something like a digital age version of public accommodation or a digital age version of common carriage. That is, no discrimination as to who can use, no discrimination in terms of content, just keep the data flowing, just let allow people to make economic transactions. Exceptions for clearly illegal content. No doubt about that, and that's true everywhere. But basically, they should keep their hands off content moderation. They should keep their hands off uh, content regulation. So to that extent, the, the idea that people have in their heads about public utilities or public fora, that's what makes the most sense of that intuition. But that applies only to basic internet services and to payment systems. As to the rest, as to the curators, which everybody writes about is in the newspapers, Facebook, Amazon, as, uh, um, uh, Twitter, Google, different set of rules will apply. The different set of rules will apply, um, I think I would, per, I would argue for two basic kinds of reforms. Here they are. The first, sound in, antitrust and competition policy, that was the subject of the last panel. The second, sound in, privacy protection. As to antitrust and competition policy, here I want to use the term antitrust law and competition law more generally than 20th century American antitrust law has been. As you know from the last panel, antitrust law in the 20th century was organized around a model of the protection of consumer welfare. There are various problems of translating this set of concerns into 21st century digital companies that provide their services for free. I actually think that one should go even further and draw on a different body of law, which is media concentration law, which was the province of the FCC during the 20th century. Um, so our interest in, interest in antitrust might be an interest in lowering the cost of goods and uh, protecting consumer welfare economically, but media concentration law has always been interested in a different set of issues. The interest of that body of law has been the protection of democracy and the generation of a diverse and antagonistic set of sources of information that are necessary for an informed public in a democracy. Now it's also true that if you go way back to the beginnings of antitrust law, there's also a democratic-centered idea of antitrust law uh, right around the turn of the, of the uh, 20th century. That's because the people that are writing the antitrust laws are not thinking in terms of uh, 20th century uh, economics. They're thinking in terms of the threat to democracy that comes from the rise of trusts. That is, these, the version, 19th century version of corporations, hence the word antitrust, right? And there's a famous picture of uh, the United States Senate in which these huge trusts, that is, huge corporations, uh, are big fat things, uh, big fat things sitting behind individual senators, basically telling them what to do. And that's the portrait of the United States Senate that's in the late 19th century. That's what the people who write the antitrust laws are worried about. They're worried about huge concentrations of wealth, 
huge monopoly power, basically perverting and undermining a system of representative government. Not just the question, the 20th century question, of consumer welfare. So I want to think about competition policy in this broader democratic sense. Whether we call it antitrust law, which would require reform, by the way, a change in antitrust law, or whether we call it competition policy, or whether we call it media concentration policy, I don't care what you call it. I just want to focus on the democratic reasons for the regulation of the economy. That is, the political economy that is at the heart of certain kinds of competition law. And here, it seems to me, what we want to do is not, we might do a whole bunch of different things, but one thing we might be interested in doing is not just simply the idea of breaking up these companies or making them smaller, but engage in a proactive form of regulation in the kinds of competitors that they can purchase. That is one of the reasons why Facebook has gotten so large and powerful is that it saw very early on who was likely to be a competitor in the space of social media. And they bought those people up very early on before they had a chance to get big enough to be of concern to the FTC or the Justice Department. And so we have to rethink what anti-merger, anti-monopoly ideas would mean in this particular age, an age of innovation, in which in fact it's not the problem of number one buying up number two, it's the problem of number one buying up dot oh, 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 one percent of the market, because that's who they see as their competitor in the future. And preventing the development and innovation that comes with multiple players in this particular space. That is, this kind of antitrust policy is deeply concerned with innovation. It is highly pro-innovation. And the way in which it understands the goals of merger policy is organized around innovation. But also because there's a kind of insurance and security that comes with multiple players, multiple affordances, multiple abilities. And this has to do with the security problem. Russia hacked us in 2016. In fact, they just didn't hack Facebook. They also went after other social media. But imagine that there were lots and lots and lots of different social media with lots of different affordances. It makes it more difficult. It makes it more difficult to successfully hack a democracy. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying it increases the level of difficulty. Another thing that we might be interested in doing is instead of breaking up by size, we might want to break up by function. What do I mean by this? Very simple. Right now, it used to be in the 20th century, if you wanted to reach a particular kind of audience, you would go to the publisher of a magazine, or a television station, or a seller of books, and you would say, I want to reach this particular kind of audience because they made the products, they were very good at reaching the audiences. But we moved to an interesting kind of world. In this world, the content providers, the journalists, the, uh, the newspapers, the broadcast media, are no longer the best way to reach the audiences they serve. That is, they're no longer useful intermediaries for advertisers. Instead, a relatively small number of companies, Facebook and Google being the two most important, are in fact so much better at the job of identifying particular kinds of customers to serve ads. They have, in some sense, cornered the market on advertising, on digital advertising. And what that means is, is that a lot of the hopes and dreams for a renovation of journalism, American journalism in the digital age, will go for naught. Because all of these models assumed 
that digital journalism could finance itself through advertising revenue, just as 20th century journalism had financed itself through advertising revenue. But if you move to a world in which Facebook and Google, these two powerful players, are so much more adept at cornering the market on advertising, then all journalistic enterprises will have to take crumbs or table scraps from their plates. They will not, in fact, be able to survive, as we see every day. If you want to understand the stories you read in the newspaper, X company has laid off X number of journalists, Y company is closing down its operations, Z company can't make it work anymore, and you say, what will ever become of newspapers and journalism which are necessary for American democracy? I have news for you. Follow the money. The money has to do with advertising and advertising networks and control of advertising and advertising networks. Here, too, competition law has a role to play but it's not necessarily the same role that it played in the 20th century. It's a role about breaking up control over advertising in the interests, not of consumer welfare, but in the interests of American democracy. The second big idea for reform that I want to suggest to you has nothing to do with antitrust. It has to do with privacy. Although, as you know from the previous panel, antitrust and privacy, they're not that separate. The idea is very simple. The grand bargain of digital media, the grand bargain of the digital public sphere, is I give you all this wonderful stuff, magical stuff for free, you give me all the data about you so I can surveil you and basically sell the data to other people and serve advertisements to you and broker advertisements with others. That is precisely the grand bargain that leads to all the mischief, that causes all the problems. And the reason is, is because Facebook owes no real loyalty to its end users. Its real loyalty is to the revenues it gets from advertisement. There was a wonderful moment in the Senate hearings um, when uh, Mark Zuckerberg came to Washington. And um, I think it was Senator Hatch of Utah who says, well, uh, how do you make money? You give your services away for free. And Mark Zuckerberg said, we sell ads, Senator. Everybody understood that as saying, oh, Senator Hatch is so clueless, he didn't even know that. No, what Senator Hatch was asking was, who is the group of people you're most loyal to? Who are the group of people who you care about at the end of the day? And the answer was not the end users, it was the advertisers. So there's a conflict of interest that's created by the grand bargain. How do we address that conflict of interest? So one way of doing it is a proposal that I've made. Um, and that in which I've been assisted by a number of very, very able people. There's an article I wrote together with Jonathan Zittrain uh, of the Berkman Center uh, and uh, Woodrow Herzog and, uh, Woody Herzog and uh, Kate Klonick and many other folks at the Information Society Project. And this is the idea of information fiduciaries. And the idea is very simple. Um, Facebook has a conflict of interest, but Facebook is not the only group of people with conflicts of interest. Doctors have conflict of interests. They get an enormous amount of sensitive information about you, which if they wanted to, they could sell to other people, or use against you, or screw you over. Lawyers talk about conflicts of interest. How many of you, by the way, uh, have, have yet taken a course on a legal profession? We're going to take a course? Yeah, we don't do that anymore. Uh, legal profession is all about the conflicts of interest between the lawyer and the client. 
and all the potential conflicts of interest between the lawyer and the client. So this idea isn't new. How does the law deal with this problem in the profession? It's very simple. It requires the professional to be a fiduciary, to have a duty of loyalty, a duty of care, and a duty of confidentiality with respect to the client. That's because these professions, which are heavily information intensive, create ever-present dangers that the professional will abuse their superior knowledge and information at the expense of the client. And so the law imposes a duty of care with the information they receive, a duty of confidentiality with respect to the information they receive, and above all, a duty of loyalty with respect to the information they received. Now, if you look at the Cambridge Analytica scandal, you can understand it in terms of a failure of a duty of care, a duty of confidentiality, and a duty of loyalty. That's the best way, I think, to think of what that scandal is about. What Facebook did was they were not very careful about who they gave access to the social graphs to. They didn't do very much checking, and when they found out there were problems, they didn't try to claw back the data. They were not very good at keeping the data confidential, and indeed they didn't require of the people they gave access to the social graphs to, to treat it with the same degree of care and confidentiality that they were responsible for. And then finally, they really lacked a duty of loyalty. Uh, they basically handed out the, or made accessible the social graft of their end users to all sorts of fly-by-night operations without very much concern as to whether or not these operations were interested in manipulating or abusing their end users. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to make money. And, the, and once you exhaust the amount of money you can make through your own advertising brokery, then you can make money another way by basically giving access to the social graph or access to information about the social graph to third parties who will gladly pay for it. And another way we just saw today in the newspaper, you can basically ask kids to run up large amounts of money on their parents' credit cards. All of these things flow from the three concerns that a fiduciary model is aimed at. Duties of care, duties of confidentiality, and duties of loyalty. I just want to point out that this model of fiduciary duty is not centrally a model that regulates content moderation. That is to say, this model is not a model that says, Facebook, from now on, you have to take this down and leave this up. You have to allow these people to speak and not allow those people to speak. That's not what these are about. These ideas of fiduciary duty and antitrust are designed to create a change in the business incentives of these companies and to create a different set of incentives to take care of the interests of end users and also to take care of the interests of democracy. The goal here is not to directly regulate the way in which Facebook or any other social media itself regulates content. The goal rather is to leave it to their judgment how to do that but to prevent them from having bad incentives created by the grand bargain of, uh, of digital public sphere. I'll explain why the last point I want to make. I said before that an effective public sphere requires an infrastructure and it also requires institutions, educational institutions, journalism, various other institutions that make it possible for people to get ideas and to think about them and discuss them with other people. The 21st century has a new set 
of institutions that have become absolutely crucial to the spread and discussion of ideas in society. These are social media companies. They didn't want to be that. That wasn't their goal, but that's what they became. The goal of reform should be to try to coax and encourage these companies to take on the public duties and obligations that institutions performed in the 20th century and the 19th century. That is, to be curators of democratic discourse. Their role and their function is different than the role and function of newspapers and educational institutions because what they do is different. But the same basic idea is present. You may say, how can that be? How can for-profit enterprises become important institutions in democracy? Well, the answer is it's happened many, many times before. It happened with book publishers. It happened with newspapers. In fact, if you went to the turn of the 20th century, newspapers were not the newspapers you think of today. Newspapers did not have journalistic standards of objectivity and fair reporting that they try to live up to and don't always. They didn't think of those, themselves having those obligations at all. What happened was in the 20th century, the rise of mass communication and changes in technology and society basically convinced newspapers that they had to take on public obligations and duties. And though so they did. And they produced the vision of journalism that we think of as characteristic of the middle of the 20th century, which has been eaten away basically by the 21st century. And so we've had a revolution in technology and society. But somebody, some set of institutions, has to take up that slack. The most likely set of institutions to do it will be the content curators. They'll have to take up that obligation. But the point, and the point of reform is, they won't take up that obligation as long as their business models give them every reason not to. Thank you very much. Are we going to do, do some questions? Uh, we are going to do some questions. I don't know how long we're going to do questions for. All right. Yes, sir. Go ahead. So I'm interested in this last point that you made about uh, the beauty of care convention loyalty in relation to this notion of these social media companies putting up an echo chamber to isolate ideas, to amplify them. Do those relate as well, or is this a different concept of echo chamber? I, uh, I actually don't think that the central function of the uh, information fiduciary model is to prevent echo chambers. Um, I could end up being wrong about that. It would depend on how the echo chambers are being constructed. So, for example, if it turns out, which there's some evidence for, that the purpose, that the underlying purpose of the design of the algorithms in YouTube or Facebook is one, to addict, and two, to constantly give you more and more outrageous stuff to keep you locked in and addicted so that you'll keep coming back, well, that would seem to me to be a violation of the duty of loyalty. But the basic idea that the goal of regulation is to prevent echo chambers does not strike me as centrally what I'm about. Yes? So, certain precedences such as the Arab Spring and things like that where information was controlled and to do evil, and it's still going on now. Yeah. I mean, that's when you're talking about different institutions. What do we have now really is regulating what people are seeing and also how they're influenced? Well, 
let me restate your question in a slightly different way and see whether or not I'm getting you in the same. I'm, I'm getting what you're saying. What you're saying is, look, we have a world of terrible things going on: revolutions, riots, wars, persecutions, right? And we also have a world of these new media, and these new media are being used in the context of these wars, riots, persecutions, demagoguery, fascism, all these terrible things, right? And the question you're asking is, what's the relationship between these terrible things and the social media that's being used? And the answer is that the relationship is very similar, although not identical, to the relationship between the use of newspapers and books in the early years, first hundred years really, of the printing press and the use of radio and television in the 20th century. That is to say, demagogues and uh, evil people make use of these new media and quickly learn how to turn them to their advantage. And they use them to commit terrible acts of evil. And they use them to destroy human beings. And this is true with each advance in um, uh, media ability and each advance in media technology. The printing press we now think of as entirely innocent. The printing press was an incredibly dangerous instrument of religious bigotry and warfare. Um, and now we don't think of it that way anymore. But yeah, it's an incredibly dangerous instrument. That's why, it's one reason, not the only reason, why lots of, of countries wanted to restrict access to printing presses. Um, the, um, if you want to see genocide, just use radio. Use radio to whip up uh, anger and hatred against people that you don't like, and you can use the radio to do it. And you can do tele use television, too. And now you can use social media. So the question that we want to ask ourselves is this. Does the fact that now terrible people, evil people, demagogues, racists, have now learned how to use this new technology of mass communication change the way in which we should think about its regulation? That is the question you're asking. The way I've posed it, you can see what you th I think the answer is. The answer is no. There is no special reason to think that the forms of violence and demagoguery we're seeing now with this use of the medium requires a special and different form of regulation of the medium any more than regulation of the printing press or television or radio or newspapers in the past. That doesn't mean that this evil isn't happening. It is. But this is a question about regulation. Yes, sir. Is a natural consequence of the antitrust plan that you had, um, do you see it as sort of the, the end of social media as a business model entirely? Because if you accept the premise that social media companies are capitalizing on their user base, in other words, thinking about connecting the world as Facebook does, if you break that up and shrink the worlds that Facebook can connect, does that, just, does that destroy the business model of social media? Probably not. Um, we're seeing an early version of the business model of social media. We're not seeing a mature model of, their, of these businesses. It's very important to understand that social media are only about uh, 12 to 13 years old. Uh, so we're basically seeing a very early conception of how you make money through providing this particular service. Um, and it's still possible, even under an information fiduciary model or under a model of any of the antitrust models, it's possible to make money. You just have to make money different ways. You won't make as much money. That is, you won't make money hand over fist. You won't make extraordinary profits, but you can make money. I mean, this is actually related uh, to the debate over network neutrality. 
One way of understanding what the debate over network neutrality is, is whether or not you're going to limit the way in which broadband companies can make money. If you <coughs> require network neutrality, they're only going to be, a, be able to make money in limited ways. Subscriptions from their end user base and also certain kinds of deals will be permitted with content providers, but others they won't be permitted. And so what that will mean is that certain kinds of extraordinary profits that they would very much want to have, they won't be able to have. But they'll make money. They'll make money, but they won't be as rich. And their shareholders won't be as rich. And their shareholders will be upset, and their stock price will go down. But they'll still be able to make money. The same thing is true with social media. That is, one way of thinking about the history of Facebook is that Facebook, during this period, you've got to think of it as very experimental. It's not like a, it's not like a business that's been going on for a long time and we're destabilizing it. It's a business that over the course of 10 years between 2006 and 2016, right, was trying everything it could think of to basically goose up its profits. If it had just stopped and said, we'll do this but not that, they still would have made lots of money uh, and, and Mark Zuckerberg could, could still have had a fabulous house. But as an actor in a free market, they basically said, let's try all these different things. Let's see if we can make extraordinary profits. And they did, right? And so regulation comes in after such a moment that is in, a, in an industry that's maturing and it tries to ask, what ways are, will we allow you to make money? And, and I've got news, by the way, for Facebook. It's not news to them. They already know it. Facebook has essentially three ways of making money. One way of making money is they can give their data to third parties and collect uh, money off the top. That's Cambridge Analytica. They're not going to do that so much anymore because they got burned for that. Right? The second way they can do it is by um, increasing the number of people who use Facebook. Uh, well, they have two billion people now. There are seven billion people in the world. You can see there's going to be a natural limit to this unless they get the concession on Alpha Centauri. Right? So they're going to have limits to growth and they're not going to be able to make these extraordinary profit margins they've been making in the past. So that leads to the third way in which they could make money. They could get the people they do have on Facebook to use it more and more often. There is also a natural limit to that, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> right? And that leads to problems that you were, we were talking about before with respect to issues of addiction. So they are already facing a world in which they will not be able to make these extraordinary profits that characterize the first decade of their existence. And what goes for them is also going to be true for all the other social media companies as well. <coughs> One way of putting it is this. Regulatory models for the digital public sphere have to ensure the possibility of viable businesses so that this, the functions of a public sphere can be served. But they do not require any particular level of profit and they do not require any particular business model. Those can be altered in the public interest. Right. We're talking here about economic regulation. Those can be altered in the public interest where our goals are basically democratic. I, I now have made no friends whatsoever at certain parts of Silicon Valley by saying that. Yes? Well, I just wanted to say it's almost time for lunch, so if you want to take one or a few more questions. I, I have only one thing to say at this point. I'm hungry. Let's go eat lunch. <laughs> it was wonderful talking to you all. Thank you all very much. <laughs>